Romans chapter 8, I'll, I'll, uh, in a minute here, we'll begin in verse 28, and we'll go to verse 39. And as I was thinking about it, um, you know, uh, so these are verses. Um, if you've been around the church or if you've been a believer, um, these are verses that you very likely know. Um, in fact, I was just at a funeral yesterday, and the uh, what was uh, printed on the back of the funeral program uh, were a portion of these verses. And so, uh, you know, as I think about Gosh, how, how do you stand up here and you preach these verses? I think the very best thing that a preacher can do is to stay out of the way of these verses. And, 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 and the reason I say that is that for centuries throughout history and countless circumstances and lives of believers, men and women and children have found comfort and hope in these verses without the aid of a preacher. I mean, these verses are beautiful. It's, it's a breathtaking view, you know, at the, at the peak of God's grace. And we behold this beauty, I mean, a lot like the sun breaking through the, the night sky and ushering in the morning. A few years ago, I had this great opportunity. I, you know, I'll probably never have an opportunity like it again, but I had an opportunity to spend a night on top of Mount Sinai. And uh, in fact, Eric Barton and I worked together when we did it. And um, it's one of those things, so, so the whole, whole reason to, to be able to do it, you, you hike up there um, really into the night. So you start about five in the afternoon because um, it's too hot to start earlier. But by the time you get up there, it's, you know, it's like 40 degrees at night. And, and so, but the, the whole reason that you would do it, I mean, besides, it being Mount Sinai, is um, that, you, that you're, you're, you're greeted in the morning with the sunset. Now listen, no, nobody had to explain the beauty of what I was looking at, but the reality is somebody had to help me get up to the top of Mount Sinai. And then once we were up there in the dark, say, hey, at about 4.22 in the morning, you want to be standing right here so that you don't miss the sun coming up. And then the sun comes up and just illuminates this, this most breathtaking mountainscape that you've ever seen. So the, we come to these verses that my hope is, I, I want to I try to get you to the spot so that you can see the sun break through. There's, a, there's part of this beauty I don't have to explain to you. I want to help you get to the spot to be able to see it. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to start in verse 28, and I'm going to read, we'll just read a couple of verses at a time um, and explain them, and then we'll walk through this passage that way. So look at verse 28, um, and, and you know this. And so, um, and Paul writes here, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when Paul says we know, um, he's, he's talking to believers here. So, in Paul's day, there, there was, they, most people would have said something like this in Paul's day. It was a 
um, a, a street knowledge that, that people had. In fact, that the saying of, of Paul's day was, um, all the Almighty does, he does for good. And it's a true statement, but what Paul's appealing to is, hey, it, it's more than just a statement. It's more than just something you can say. It's something that as a believer, you can really know. In fact, you can know it to the degree that you would stake your life on it. I mean, it, it's not just a pithy cliche. It's something you can stake your life on. You can know this. You can experience it. You can count on it. That's what Paul's saying. And when he says all things, it, it includes everything. And if you're wondering in your mind as you read that, well, I wonder if it includes this. Well, yes, it does. All things. All things work together for good. Now, in, in, in one sense, um, the, the all things, depending on, on how you take it, um, th there are th these all things, not all the things themselves are good, but they can work together for good. In, in fact, there are a lot of things that are not good at all. And in fact, that's what he's going to talk about in verse 32, and again in verse 35. Um, but, but what Paul's saying is he's affirming God's sovereignty with confidence. And it's similar to, to Joseph's words at the end of, of Genesis 50 when he meets with his brothers, and, and he says to them, well, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God in his sovereignty can take all things and work them towards the good. Now, here's a couple of things that, that, you know, help us, you know, get out of the way of this verse. The, the good here, um, all things uh, together for good. Um, the good is certain, but it is not predictable. What, what I mean is we don't know what the good is going to be. We're not told exactly what that good is. And we're not told when the good will be. See, our expectations are meant to be firmly fixed on God, but believing that, that He knows what our highest good is, and He's fiercely for our highest good. So, we shouldn't have expectations towards, you know, what that's going to look like or when it will be realized, but believing that, that God will work that to good, that He will um, um, bring good because He is for our joy and He is for us conforming to the likeness of His Son, Jesus, and He is for your faith and He is for your dependence on Him. And so I think too often we think, we get in our mind, well, well, this would be the good that would come out of this. And we begin to set expectations on God, and he may, he may do something different. So we're meant to trust God, not meant to come with expectations of saying, okay, well, this is the good we think. Well, there's nothing in the world that will come to us or happen to us that hasn't first been sifted through the hands of God and that 
And that God intends, he promises for our ultimate good to accomplish his perfect will in our life now and in eternity. Maybe I'd say it this way. Here's what you can count on. That when suffering comes or sin comes or hardship or pain or confusion, these are never the end of the story for a believer. It's never the end of the story. In fact, it's only the beginning of good that will come straight from the hand of a loving God. For those that are called according to his purpose. And the purpose is salvation from beginning to end. In fact, that's what the next verses are about. He'll, he'll write something similar to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he says this, talks about um, uh, believers who, who are, he says, who, who uh, talking about Jesus and how he saved us, he says, who saved us um, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That what God's doing, this, this purpose, this purpose that we're called according to, comes from before the ages. That's when God purposed that. Now, look at um, beginning verse 29. Let's look at 29 and 30. And he says this. He says, for those... Um, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these verses, um, this, this plan of God... Um, you know, the, 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 this is our great hope. I mean, this is, this is the plan of God. This is what we've been called according to. This is the great hope. And throughout, this, the, throughout the church, what, what these verses have been referred to is as the golden chain. You know, in each of them, this, this link in this golden chain. Now, I'm going to talk about each of these words, but I want to say a few things just before I talk about them. One, while these verses are instructive... Um, it, it, they, they help inform us in what we would talk about as the doctrine of salvation. I would say this. These two verses do not constitute the whole doctrine of salvation. But they do inform the doctrine of salvation. They're just not the whole doctrine of salvation. Secondly, I'd say that these verses have meaning in this context, which is written to believers for their encouragement during suffering that they are experiencing and that they will experience. And then that Paul's writing this, and, and, he's, and he's laying this out. He, his intention is not writing a systematic theology to tell us about the doctrine of salvation. What he's doing is he's writing and encouraging believers who have experience suffering and will experience suffering. And you go all the way back to verse 18 when he talks to us about considering our suffering or reckoning our suffering. Now, the third thing 
I would say. And then, and then I got a third thing and I got a fourth thing. But this third thing, I really want you to hear this. So if you dropped off, I want you to come back and I want you to hear this. These verses, if you're a believer, okay, so you're a fellow believer, these verses are for us. They are not verses for them, whoever the them are for you. Let me say it this way. I think it violates the context to take these verses and use them to argue for reasons why someone is not a believer. That's not why these verses were written. If the question that you come to these verses with are, why is someone not a believer? I want to tell you, these verses aren't meant to answer that question. So don't do that. These verses are meant to provide assurance for those that are believers going through suffering, wondering, has God forgotten about me? Does, it, see, does he know about me? That's why they were written. They're, they're meant to strengthen the faith of those who are believers by assuring them of what God has done and what God will do. This is assurance for believers, not an explanation regarding unbelievers. Fourth thing I'd say is that God's sovereignty is always exercised in love. The context is always love or mercy. Okay? So there's three, there's four things. I'm really interested in you remembering the third one, though. It's for believers. This isn't an explanation about why people are not believers. All right. What began in eternity past, this is the picture of it. What began in eternity past will reach its climax in eternity future. What begins with the grace of God ends with the glory of God. Salvation is totally God's work. That's what Paul's saying. Salvation originates in the sovereign will of God, and it is accomplished by his grace. Now, I'm going to give you we'll walk through these words, but the first word I have to talk about, I'm getting it from verse 33. It's actually not in the golden chain. It's assumed um, as the beginning of the golden chain. So, verse 33, real quick, who shall bring any charge against God's, and then what is the word there? Elect, chosen, elect. All right, so let me talk about election, and then we'll pick back up and walk through, walk through 29 and 30. So, election is God's sovereign gracious plan before creation to save those who believe, not because of any foreseen merit in them, not because, meaning not because they're, they're worthy or, or they, were, they were the better, they, you know, they're the best of the best. They're chosen, they're elected only because of God's good pleasure. 
It's a sovereign plan because God's under no obligation to elect anyone. And it's an act of grace because the recipients are totally undeserving. Elections always, it's always unconditional. It's always initiated by God. Illustration has been given. I think it's a good one. It's an old one, but it's a good one if you haven't heard it. Um, it's been given, you know, the person enters heaven and they, and they come through the door and the sign above the door, whosoever will may come. You get through the door and you turn around and you look back and the sign over the door the other way says chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And it illustrates that the first, you know, the first sign as you come in is the availability of salvation. Whosoever will may come. The second addresses the fact of God's choosing. Both are true. If God had not elected, none would have believed. Then he says, foreknowledge, those whom God foreknew. Now listen, it does not mean that God looked down the corridor of time and saw whether, whether we would choose him or not and then elects based on that. See, the problem with that view is that the object of foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 here is not a person's faith, but a person. God, God foreknew the person, not something he or she would do. That's not what that's saying. It's, just, it's a relational word. It's a, um, 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 God initiates a relationship. He doesn't, the Bible, listen, the Bible does not present a God who discovers what he does not know. Our God is not a God of discovery. He's a God who decrees. God, not man. God is the active agent from beginning to end. Those whom God elected, he engages in this conscious, loving relationship what it means to foreknow. Then you have predestination. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? I can just see people grabbing their phones going, I'm, I'm Googling this. That can't be right. <laughs> predestination is another great word, right? Thankfully, he puts it all in this passage and we don't have to worry about it, right? And then I've given Romans 9 to somebody else so I don't have to preach that not true. I'll be here. Let's preach the hardest passage in the Bible next week, all right? So, don't miss it. Um, predestination, to mark out beforehand. So, six times it's used in the New Testament. And, w- and what it means is that by God in his sovereign choice marked believers off in eternity past. So, God, what it means, so he pre-plans this great destiny for those whom he chose for himself and whom he established a loving relationship. And that destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son. That is why he elects and foreknows and then predestines for the purpose of being conformed to the image of his son. John writes in his letter, 1 John 3, when he is revealed, this is Jesus, 
When he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, let me say another thing. Election, verse 33, and predestination, they do not, however, take away man's responsibility. Even though election and predestination are clearly taught in Scripture, man and woman, you are held accountable for your choices. Scripture never suggests that a man is lost because he's not elect or has not been predestined. The Bible never gives that explanation for why someone's not a believer. And the emphasis of Scripture is that man is lost because he refuses to believe the gospel. You are accountable for your choice. You think, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm tracking all this. Well, let me just say, welcome to the club. All right? Um, J.I. Packer calls it an antinomy. So, two things that are seemingly opposite each other, but they are both true. Well, one old theologian says, he says, you know, well, I don't understand electricity, but I'm not going to sit around in the dark until I do. There's a sense in which you don't, you're not called to fully understand this. You're invited to believe it. And we, we're called to believe many things that come from the hand of our infinite God. And in our finite understanding, we're called to believe what I believe some things we won't be able to comprehend Eternity won't be able, long, long enough for us to be able to comprehend it. All right. Uh, called. Where does the time go? All right. So, he says we're, you know, so we're, we're called, which means this. We're not saved by chance. Calling is the sovereign, specific work of God through the power of His Spirit, where He he pursues us and woos us and draws us and frees us so that we can respond to God's offer of Jesus. From the moment that God opens our hearts to the truth of the gospel, we're, we're his called ones. And so Spurgeon has this great illustration of the difference between sort of this general call and, and then when it becomes this, this specific call. And, and he calls this general call um, I, I got a cloud picture. So he talks about it in two different kinds of lightning. Um, so this, this is, this is what is called um, sheet lightning. I had to look all this up. I didn't understand it, but sheet lightning. So where you just see the lightning in the clouds, you know what I mean? Just, so the clouds just sort of light up. That's, that's the general call. But then he says, hey, you know, and that's, and that's beautiful. Um, but, you know, nobody's ever struck by that. But then he says there, there's a special call, and, and it's more like a fort flash from heaven. But that's the special call. 
and it strikes somewhere. The sheet lightning is impressive. It's beautiful. This fort lightning, it's specific. That's the kind of call he's saying here. You're called. And all of this is grace. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Is God at work in us before we're aware of it? It's like C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the lion, Aslan, the lion says it. Um, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. And that's what we can say. The worst thing that you could do this morning, the worst thing that could happen is that you would spend your life trying to outrun God because you think he's chasing you down to collect what he owes from you. And the reality is he's chasing you to give you what you could never afford. And then he talks about we, those who are called are justified, standing right before God based upon the righteousness, the sacrifice of, of Jesus. It, it's unchanging because it's wholly dependent upon Christ. So what God decreed in eternity past is experienced in a moment in time. And that's that's salvation. God's known you and pursued you from eternity past and has promised to accomplish and secure your salvation in eternity future. And then he says, those that are justified are glorified. Notice justified and glorified. They're both in the past tense. It suggests that... We, that we, we should look forward to glorification with the same confidence we look back at our justification. All of this is God's divine purpose of conforming you to the image of His Son. The other thing is, from the beginning of the chain to the end of the chain, nobody, nobody gets lost. He carries you all the way through. All right. So, let's pick up in verse 31. I might call this section God's love on trial. All right? Look at what it says. It says, what then? There's going to be a series of questions. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, um, but gave up for us, uh, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against the, uh, God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
these four questions, um, just four I'll highlight, there's actually more, but, but the four main questions, verse 31 is, if God's for us, who can be against us? And he's going to answer, look, we have no opposition anymore. The next one, he's going to say, you know, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He's going to answer, there's no accusations anymore. Verse 34, who's to condemn? Well, there's no condemnation. He already told us that in, in chapter 8, verse 1. And then who shall separate us in verse 35 from the love of Christ? There's no separation. In verse 31, 32, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So, in one sense, it's arguing from the greater to the less. I mean, if he's given you all of this, why in the world would he deny you all the lesser things? He's given us his best. He's given us his son. Why wouldn't he give us everything else that's good? He's given us the highest and the best. He doesn't hold out the lesser things. John chapter 1, verse 16, of his fullness we've received grace upon grace. Let me say it this way. When you're overwhelmed by the trials and troubles of life and you feel like you're drowning you can embrace this you, you can embrace this as a truth that is sufficient it is, it is a truth that is sure see too often I think people you know begin desperately looking so, so is there no new secret a new spiritual level I got to attain or you know um, is there some special key that's going to unlock something you know, that something might be more effective and I would say as Paul there's no need for that you've been given all things grace is sufficient he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing and Paul's whole point is isn't grace isn't, isn't just it's never just enough. Grace is always more than enough. From beginning to end, it is a pattern of God lavishing his grace upon those he loves. There's more beauty in his grace than any one person or one church or one generation can fully comprehend. And the best is still yet to come. Well, in verse 33, um, you know, who, who, um, uh, who, who should bring a charge against God's elect? And uh, the answer is no one. There's, there's no accuser uh, left. So, um, the word for Satan um, uh, is accuser. It's, it's the same word. He's, he's the great accuser. In fact, there's this picture in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, one of the minor prophets. And it's this great picture. It's a courtroom scene. Joshua's a high priest. He's standing before the Lord, before Jesus. And on one side of him is Satan, this prosecuting attorney, um, the accuser. And, and the... the the accuser, the Satan here, I mean, he's, he's bringing the charges against him. And, and, and what you see in the, in the picture is that Joshua, this high priest, he's standing there in, in filthy clothes. I mean, he's polluted from head to toe. 
And, and it's like the accuser saying, see, see him? And what's interesting in the, in the passage is Joshua says nothing in his defense. You know why? Because he knows it's true. And yet Jesus there in this great picture of what he's going to do with Israel commands the angel to remove the filthy clothes and to, and to, and to clothe him in these pure vestments. Jesus, he comes to the defense. He's, he's the advocate. And here's the reason. The Bible says he, he traded with us. He took our filthy garments, stepped in our place, stepped into our guilt, was made our sin, Paul says, even though he knew no sin, so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. I mean, he took our judgment. He destroyed the accuser. Back Revelation 12, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The accuser who accuses them night and day before God. The accuser comes and, and what Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God making intercession, the accuser comes and says, see? Jesus says, yeah, but they're mine. I already paid for that. That's why he can say in verse 34, who is there to condemn us? Christ Jesus. And the answer is no one, because Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he's the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. It comes down to this. Who, who, do you, who are you listening to? Who do you trust? Do you trust your advocate, Jesus, your intercessor, or do you entrust the accuser? And let me just say this morning that there are probably some of you sitting here, and you can say, listen, in all honesty, you can say, look, th this is a truth that I believe. But at this moment right now, it's not a truth you're experiencing. Condemnation is what you're experiencing. Your life is so out of sync and so heavy with sin or so stained with bitterness. Your soul is tired. You feel defeated and condemned and far away from God. I mean, listen, isn't nothing short of a miracle that you're even here this morning? And the, what Paul is saying is the, the God that you are sure is so disappointed and angry and out to get you, it turns out he's a God who loves you, who wants to restore you, who wants you to know the grace of, of all he desires to give you. Who is there to condemn? Who, who could condemn? You're safe. You're loved. God wants you to come home. There's this story about when Martin Luther was in Wittenberg and he preached grace all the time, and, and that had taken hold, but it had also come with some people that were really kind of abusing that. This weird and sinful behavior began to manifest, and it, Luther was 
so depressed about that. But that's what people were doing with this. Um, so a friend came and asked him, he said, hey, listen, if you had it to do over again, would you have preached the same gospel of grace? And Luther thought about it for a moment. And he said, yeah, I would, because it's better for them to know this gospel and not live it than to not know the gospel, because he knew, he knew this, about the message of God's grace. If you get it, if you get it, you'll always come back. And when you come back, it'll be as though you never left. Maybe this morning, you need to come back and experience the grace of God as though you never left. Well, in 35 and 36, you know, who, who shall separate us? No one and nothing. Th these things, are, they're stated, it's in, increasing in intensity here. It's all things from Romans 8.28. The, all the things that work together for good. Well, what, what are they? Well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As a new creation in, in heaven. Created for heaven. You're created for eternity. You're glorified already from the standpoint of eternity. And all who are born again to to glorify God, are now being prepared for glory. Right? That's why he says in, in, in quotes in 36, this um, uh, quote, quotes from the psalm. It, it's, listen, it, no one will escape suffering and danger in this life. It's always been that way. The testimony of God's saints throughout history says, listen, the circumstances of our life are not the barometer of God's love. David, you know, Psalm 23, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death and proclaims, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Psalm 13, David's dogged by his enemies, his soul's drowning in his sorrows, and yet he sings, but I've trusted in your steadfast love, which means a love that'll never end, mercy that never ceases. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, he sings. I'll sing to the Lord because he deals generously with me. Solomon, 1 Kings 18, proclaims, no, not one word has failed of his good promise. And Jacob, Jacob, near the end of his life in Genesis, Jacob means deceiver. His life had been riddled with scandal and wrestling, wrestling with his brother and with his father-in-law and his sons and his wives and, and literally wrestling with God. And then the, towards the end of his life, he looks back on his life and he says this, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Nothing will separate us. Corey ten Boom 
survive the horror of the imprisonment of Ravenbrook, Ravensbrook concentration camp. She's the one that would say, there's, n there's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. It's true. So he'll say in 37, now knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in 38 and 39, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It begins Roman 8, Romans 8 with no condemnation in Christ. And now nothing separates us from the love of God for those that are in Christ. We're meant to look back at these questions that have been asked here. all the no's that are declared in, in the verdict of verse 37, who, who's there left to condemn us? We look around and there's nobody. And this comes to this, this great end. It's like, it's like the, come to the end of Romans 8 and the, it's the sunset that, that breaks through the sky, the night sky. It's meant to bring us hope and nothing but nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In fact, that's the content of Scripture over and over again. Nothing can separate you from God's love. It's poured out in the work of Jesus. Listen, you theme, go back, you can find it in Job, the oldest book we have. Hosea, the history books, the Psalms, the Gospels. a vacuum in our hearts created so strong that the only thing that can fill it is the love of God. And God's love is absolutely unconditional as he lavishes it upon you. There's nothing that can separate you from it. A couple of final thoughts, and then if I have time, I'll tell you a story. God's love cannot be gauged by what happens to us. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love for us. The cross is that evidence. This is the love of God, John says in 1 John 4. That he sent his son to be the propitiation. This is love say secondly God's love cannot be affected by the things we do our obedience our even absolute perfection doesn't affect God's love for you and your disobedience doesn't affect God's love for you you cannot separate yourself from the love of God thirdly you'll never be more loved actively loved by anyone more than God, more generously, more unconditionally, by anyone more than God. John Bunyan, old pastor, 1600s, just put in prison, writes the famous book, the full title, The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. We just call it Pilgrim's 
progress. There's this memorable scene. Christian um, is the character. He is on a journey. He's left his city of destruction, and he's headed to the celestial city, or heaven. He's got a traveling companion named Hopeful. And they're on the road, and they find that the road is, is uh, well, it's difficult. And so they look off, and they see a meadow, and they think, well, we'll take a shortcut through the meadow. So they, they get off the path. They start walking through the grassy meadow. Before they know it, it's, it's soggy. They find themselves in the midst of poisonous vines, and now it's nighttime, and it starts raining on them, and they huddled under an oak tree. To make matters worse, they're awakened by um, a giant. His name's Giant Despair. Giant Despair captures them, drags them to his dungeon fortress called Doubting Castle, where Giant Despair begins to abuse the prisoners. Tells them they'll never escape. Takes them into the castle yard, shows them the bones of the other pilgrims who never escaped giant despair. And yet, Christian and Hopeful refuse to recant. And they're stuck in their cell. They're trying to sing, but they couldn't. Mood is dark. They're growing weaker each day from the beatings. And Christian's ready to give up. He's on the brink of hopelessness. And sometime around midnight, he's praying. And all of a sudden, he remembers. I do have a way of escape. This is what he says. At midnight, they began to pray and continued in this attitude until dawn. Then Christian suddenly exclaimed, What a fool I've been! to lie like this in this stinking dungeon when I could have just well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will, I'm thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. My good brother, do it immediately. Take it out of your chest pocket and try it. And then Christian took it, the key from his chest, and he began to try the lock and the dungeon door. And as he opened, as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked, and the door flew open with ease. So Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Three times, and Bunyan's the master of illusion. It says that the door of the doubting castle was in the Christian's chest pocket. Take it to mean Bunyan's telling us the place to hide God's promise is in our heart so that it's accessible always and in any circumstance that you'd remember like Hebrews 13, he'll never, uh, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Romans 8, 39, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 4, 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Our hope as believers rests in God. He's ever faithful and keeps his promises.
you found yourself in the doubting castle this morning, how long are you going to be there? These are promises to unlock the key of the dungeon that you're in so you can return to the king's highway, as Bunyan would say. That's great. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray. I pray again that you would do what only you can do. Father, I pray you'd meet us where we are with these verses of breathtaking hope. Father, for the places where where there might be doubt here this morning of your goodness or your love, I pray. I pray, Father, that, that your word would shatter those doubts today. 